Good singing. Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 9, or just look in your bulletins where it's printed in full. If you're new or to us or our tradition, we, you may know that, you may not know that, that we follow the liturgical calendar and we preach through books. We don't always observe the Hallmark holidays or the national holidays. At the same time, we want to honor where appropriate. My friends and I gather on Tuesday, friends, uh, fellow pastors around the city gather and pray on Tuesday. And we frequently ask each other what we're preaching on the coming Sunday. And the moderator said, uh, how many of you are staying in your series and how many of you are preaching on Mother's Day? And, and uh, when uh, my hand didn't go up, I wasn't preaching on uh, a mothers per se. Uh, they said, uh, Robertson, what are you preaching on? I said, Hosea. Oh, nothing, they said, nothing, some smart aleck preacher said on the Zoom call. Nothing says Mother's Day like a sermon from Hosea. I assured them we were not talking about Gomer and Hosea. We've left that behind in chapter 3. We've moved on just to the plain old sins of Israel. But I think mothers and others we'll find encouragement from God's gospel as it comes to us on every page of scripture. And we're not reading this whole text, not because we don't like it, but because these are uh, repetitive uh, things that we have noticed already. I want to look at what is new in this section of scripture that we have not seen yet, which begins in chapter 10, and we'll read verses 9 and following. Hosea 10, verses 9 and following. That's on page 7 of your bulletin. Hosea writes this. Since the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, Israel, and there you have remained. Will not war again overtake the evildoers in Gibeah? When I please, I will punish them. Nations will be gathered against them to put them in bonds for their double sin. Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves to thresh, so I will put a yoke on her fair neck. I will drive Ephraim, Judah must plow, and Jacob must break up the ground. Sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and break up your unplowed ground. For it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. But you have planted wickedness. You have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception. Because you have depended on your own strength and on your many warriors, the roar of battle will rise against your people so that all your fortresses will be devastated. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Lord, help us to hear in this portion of the gospel as it has been revealed over time. The passion of your love for us. Help us respond to respond to it with repentance, with trust, with new obedience. And with conversion, O oh, Holy Spirit, fall unmistakably on these words, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, God's people said together, amen. When I was in college, there was uh, such a severe snow and ice storm one weekend that none of us could get off the mountain. No preacher could come up to have a service for us. Todd had already graduated from college. He was smarter than the rest of us. The rest of us were left behind. And, uh, but Lynn was left. She was in my class. And Lynn agreed to play the piano for a little worship service we put together. And I shared from Scripture. I wouldn't call it a sermon. But I wanted to share with my brothers and sisters what had become a specially precious doctrine to me, the fatherhood of God. So we studied First John, end of First John 2 and first part of First John 3, talked about God as a father. That was very meaningful to me, the fatherhood of God, because of my father's love for me, my love for my father. I didn't think much more about that service for a couple of weeks to come until one early morning, three o'clock in the morning, there was a knock on my dorm room door. It was the son of a famous preacher. His parents in desperation had sent him to our college to try to straighten him out. And uh, he, in the course of this time that we had, the time of the snowstorm and other things, his classes were canceled and whatnot, he had about a week or so to do whatever he wanted to do, and he did it. Everything he wanted to do, and especially everything he knew, would repulse his parents. So he knocked on my door at three in the morning, and he said, I'm sick of myself. I need help. And then I want to know if that God that you were talking about in that chapel service, I want to know if that God is true because I've never heard of him before. That's not the God I grew up learning about. That's not the God of scriptures as I was taught it. Can you teach me about him? Well, I went to my go-to doctrine. I started talking to him about the love of God the Father expressed in Jesus Christ. He stopped me as soon as I mentioned Father, and he said, stop right there. I hate my Father. Don't talk to me about God. If God is like a Father, if God is like my Father, I don't want anything to do with him. The search is over right there. His dad, though he was famous apparently was an abusive man in his home. I remembered over the next several weeks, if I said, we'll just, we'll just start meeting together. Over the next number of weeks, months, we were meeting together. And I remembered, as my Bible teachers had taught me, that God uh, identifies, uses these symbols, these analogies to describe himself. But he's not those things literally. He's not a rock. He is not literally a fortress. He's not literally a father, but he uses these terms to explain his love. And some of those terms, some of those images that he uses are motherly. His love is womb-like. He says it's merciful. He longs to gather uh, his children like a hen gathers her brood. He carries his people on eagle's wings, covers them with his pinions. And so I started studying with him these motherly 
images of God. And as he, as he was, as his defenses came down, because he did love his mother, as his defenses came down, he eventually opened his heart to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. And then we continued to study and studied then the fatherly images of God. And he could embrace those two and realize that God is a true father. His father, his earthly father was a false representation. What happens when you forget that God is a father? What happens when you forget that God loves us with Ruhama, with a, with a mother's love? You act like an orphan. That's what he was doing. Feeling he was abandoned, betrayed by his father especially, but his parents as a whole, feeling like he was betrayed, he, he was living the way he was. And that's exactly what's happening with the Israelites, the Judahites in these passages in Hosea. They are living like orphans. They're not living like they're loved by God the Father. And Hosea, this is the other uniqueness of this passage in verse 14 of chapter 9. Here is another uniqueness, something we haven't seen before, and that is that Hosea breaks down in his broken heart. He breaks down with emotion and he pleads in verse 14, give them, O Lord, and then the prayer breaks off. Give them, O Lord, his heart is breaking over their continued hard hearts. They're continued to turn their backs on the Lord. And now what is happening, as it's described in chapters 9 and 10, reveals what it looks like to live like an orphan from God. First thing that we see in the passage is that living like an orphan is to live disobediently. Now remember, we've said that, that uh, there are three categories of sin that are exposed in Hosea, which are the same categories of sin throughout redemptive history and into the present day. The love of the world, which is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. To live disobediently is to live according to the lust of the eyes. That means I am, going to, I am attracted to, I am, I am uh, uh, attached to, my own understanding of the way I should live. The way I want to live is the way I'm going to live. What I determine to be truth, whatever I determine to be right, that is the way I'm going to live. I'm going to take care of myself. Now notice the disobedience that occurs in the first part of chapter 9. When we are living disobediently, it is to live uh, like you don't have a family, to live like an orphan, and it is to Seek love in all the wrong places. You have been unfaithful, God says. You have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Secondly, it is to, it is to forget your heritage. And you, then you become like those around you. You blend in with the rest of the world. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. They will eat unclean food in Assyria. They will return in practice to Egypt. 
We begin to blend in with the rest of the world. To live like an orphan disobediently is to, is to become stingy, verses 4 and 5. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. The food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. You feel like you have to hoard. You have to, you have to take care of yourself. You can't give. You can't live generously. You can't trust even the Lord. And then as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, verses 7 and 8, it is to despise the means of grace, especially the preached word. The days of judgment and punishment are coming, verse 7. The days of reckoning are at hand because your sins are so many, your hostility so great. The prophet is considered a fool. The inspired man, a maniac, the prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim. We don't need to attend to the preaching of the word. We don't need need to attend to public worship. We've got this. We can do this. We know how to live. We know how to guide ourselves. It's the lust of the eyes. Now, what is the result? What is the result of living according to the way you design? It is to, it leads to loneliness. Remember last week, I think it was last week, I referred to the Surgeon General's report on the epidemic of loneliness and isolation. That, uh, that the isolation that we are experiencing to live in loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Almost every negative marker of health in the United States has been uh, uh, indexed to the epidemic of isolation and loneliness. We are reaping what we have sown, Hosea would say. That when we say, I'm going to live my way, I'm going to live life and, and follow my dictates, you find yourself alone. Because uh, it means that you, you never have to move closer to anyone else. You don't, have to, you, you, you don't have to consider one another more important than yourselves or outdo one another in love. You never have to learn to get along with others, to serve, to let your mind be changed. Because you are the captain of your fate. It's a lonely existence. It's not the way God intended well, the imagery that Hosea uses is, is uh, manifold. In chapter 8, verse 9, he describes the same phenomenon as lonely as a wild donkey. Sometimes our, our lack of community and mutual submission to one another makes us like wild donkeys. Nobody wants to get near. They don't want to get kicked. Or we're like uncultured vines. Chapter 10, verse 12. Or unplowed ground. Other prophets use that uncultured vine as well, which means that, that when we're uncultured, when we, are, when we are not pruned, when we're not subjecting ourselves to the pruning of God's word in the context of community, we become unfruitful, isolated, wild. Jesus said, when, you're, when uh, anyone who abides in me, I will abide in him. 
And if anyone is not abiding in me and not bearing fruit, well, one way to interpret that Greek verb there is he lifts it up. He prunes it, yes, and he lifts it up that it might bear more fruit. That lifting up can be very painful. To become obedient again is to learn to say no to self. It is learn to submit to God's word and it's to offend sometimes your sensibilities, but it is to realize at the same time that God has given his law for us that life might go well with us. A friend of mine used this phrase with me this week in regard to one of his children he had to have an intervention with a few years ago. He said, we had to love him so much that we had to act cruel in his interpretation. We weren't being cruel, but it sure felt like cruelty to him, this love that we had to practice for him. Hosea uses similar language when he says, the one who has cut us will heal us. To live as a son or daughter of God is to live obediently, trusting that his way is right even when it seems counter to our desires and even when it seems a hindrance to our freedom. It is to trust him that our father knows what is best for us. A second manifestation of, of living as an orphan is degradation. That's the lust of the flesh. Sexual immorality. You find that in, uh, described in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 9. And, and in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, he alludes to two uh, low points in Israel's history. Now, why, does he, why, does he constant, why is he constantly leaning in on Israel's um, sexual immorality? Because that is the low point of turning your back on the Lord. It's the ultimate manifestation of a heart of, of disobedience. And the result is a degradation to the beauty of our being created in the image of God. When we begin to redefine our sexuality according to what we want it to be. Or we don't trust him enough to believe that the best expression of our sexuality is within the context of heterosexual marriage when we only give ourselves to one another on the basis of a of a vow that is made until death do we part it is to trust god that that is what alone is dignifying and what will uh, cause us to live as the human beings we were made to live like rather than to, to allow ourselves to be degraded to beasts, as Hosea says. Just reducing ourselves to our body parts and reducing ourselves to certain actions. Now, uh, Hosea uses uh, revolting images to remind Israel of what has happened to them in the past when they've turned their back on his word and it's found its way all the way ultimately into the expression of sexual unfaithfulness. He refers to something that happened in Gibeah and something that happened at Baal Peor. Now Gibeah, he's alluding to uh, an event that is described in Judges chapter 19 
where a Levite is visiting someone's house. He's taken into the home. He's on a, on a trip and he's taken into someone's home and they, with his concubine. We already have a problem, a Levite and a concubine. But they're, they're, they're taken into this home and then perverted men surround that home and demand that concubine. I'll spare you the rest of the revolting details, but it suffices to say that she was abused all night. Ultimately, she was killed. And the Levite made sure that in a gruesome way that sin was distributed to all this, the tribes of Israel. And it's an illustration of what the writer of Judges says over and over again. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And that's what happens. You do what is right in your own eyes. People suffer and the most vulnerable suffer especially. The other event is at, is at Baal Peor. It's an allusion to the time when the king of Moab came to, to Balaam and tried to uh, pay him to curse the people of Israel. And, and uh, Balaam wanted that money. And he tried to give that, that, uh, that curse. Even his donkey was smarter than he was. The donkey rebuked him, tried to keep him from going forward. Balaam continued on trying to curse the people of God. He couldn't, no matter how he did it, God took over his mouth and blessing came out instead. Three times he tried that. And finally, effectively, this is what was proven. Israel didn't need to be cursed to degrade and destroy itself. It just needed the opportunity. God took back his restraining hand just a little bit and the people of Israel engaged in sexual immorality with the people of Moab. And so rapid and so horrendous was the spread of the contagion and their self-destruction that by one of those acts of love that initially looked like cruelty, it had to be arrested. God is saying, you don't want to become. You're made for, you're made for something much greater. You're made for something much more beautiful. You're made in the image of God. You're more than your sexual function. You're more than, than, uh, than uh, infinitely more than allowing yourself to be reduced to temporary pleasure. You're made for so much more. Some months ago, a young woman in our congregation was asked out on a date. She didn't know if the man was a Christian or not, so they were supposed to go to dinner. Eventually, he reneged on the dinner engagement, and he said, instead, um, I was just hoping to coax you into a hookup. Her response was this. For what it's worth, I was created by God and loved and redeemed by Jesus to be way more than an object of casual sex. And the same is true for you, whether you believe it or not. That's the way someone expresses herself, himself, 
when they know they're loved by God and made for more than what this culture says we are. James Chung of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship has a summary of the questions he thinks that each generation is asking that only the gospel can answer. He says, uh, for instance, that the boomers, the baby boomers born between 46 and 64 are asking, what is true? The Xers born between 65 and 80 are asking, what is real? Millennials born between 81 and 96 are asking, what is good? And Gen Zers or iGen or whatever we are deciding to call them, born between 97 and 2015, are asking this, a great question. What is beautiful? And they're saying effectively, a God who is ugly can't be true. The gospel answers the cry of every one of these hearts, and it's a much better answer. The gospel answers what is true. It's Jesus Christ revealed in his word. What is real? It's God's definition of reality according to his word. What is good? Only the way that God prescribes. And what is truly beautiful? It is to live in every way that God made you to live, even if the rest of the world is telling you that's not beautiful. The third manifestation of living as an orphan is Defiance. It's the most frightening. It is to say, as uh, we find in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 9 and 1 through 11 and 13 through 15, it is to live with the fist raised to God and, and saying things like, that is described of them, planted in wickedness, you have reaped evil. You have eaten the fruit of deception because you have depended on your own strength and your own many warriors. You've lifted your fist in defiance to say, I don't need you. I will not submit to you. I will depend on my own strength, verse 13. I don't care if it harms my neighbor, chapter 10, verse 11, because only that which is important to me and good for me is good, is important. It is to disobey authorities, chapter 10, verse 3, even if that final authority is God. What is the hope? What is the hope for What is the hope for someone living in defiance? Maybe it is you this day and the Holy Spirit is awakening you to your defiance. And you say, how in the world do I ever come back to him? You just come back to him. You turn to him. Well, you say, what, what would I do? Uh, what, what about someone I love who has raised their fist in defiance? And they're not even, they're not even that uh, their hearts are, have not been pricked. They don't show any sensitivity to the Lord's ways. They don't listen to me in any way. What do you do with them? Well, you don't browbeat them back into the kingdom. You can't do that. You can't get them back by passive aggression. You can't get them back by threat. They will only come back by prayer. 
Because the only way anyone ever turns is for their heart to be changed. And only the Holy Spirit is able to change the heart. We've learned that from Hosea too. Now, where do I get that this is the secret? That prayer is central to anyone's coming back to the Lord, especially out of defiance and degradation and disobedience. Well, I get it because Hosea makes that point even in the way he has styled this passage. Sometimes I've, I've told you about the, the, the poetic style of, of a Hebrew author, some Hebrew authors. Sometimes we call it chiasm, like a Greek, the Greek letter key, uh, the, the X. And the point is that the Hebrew writers sometimes didn't write the way we do in Western rhetoric with a topic sentence and then we unfold our argument. But instead, they put their point, the central point, in the center. And then by means of reflection, by mirroring various phrases, they work their way back to the middle, the first and the last, the next one in and the uh, penultimate and, and so forth. Those those. Various phrases paralleling come to a point where there is no parallel. There's a unique phrase in the middle, and that's the author's main point. Now, the reason I've given you the text that I have, this section from Hosea, chapter 9, verse 1 through 10, verse 15, is because the whole thing seems to be a chiasm, and the precise center of it is in verse 14 of chapter 9. The very center of these parallel statements working their way in from chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 15, and so on, comes to the middle in chapter 9, verse 14. Give them, O Lord. What does he pray that God would give them? The mercy and the repentance that he refers to at the end of the chapter. Give them your righteousness. Give them repentance leading back to righteousness that they may escape their their prison, their, their bondage to disobedience and to degradation and to defiance. Give them repentance that they might live as children of God no longer as orphans. When my kids were very little, because we lived in a church manse, we bought for our own home a little cabin out uh, about an hour and a half from St. Louis on a little lake. And it was in a small country town. The country town had, had a, a community pool which served as the community babysitting service in the summer. The parents would drop their kids off there, and then they were watched, or actually not, by the teenage lifeguards all day long. Not judging the parents, they were doing the best they could. But, but as a result, when we decided to go there with our family, we were the, uh, Jackie and I were the only adults in the whole complex, and it immediately reminded me of a scene from Lord of the Flies. And I thought, if these children ever figure out that they outnumber us, we're all toast. We're all dead. We're all going to be drowned. 
There was a little refuge within it, there's supposed to be, a, a little kiddie pool, just a, a few inches deep and, and uh, surrounded by a chain link fence and a gate, which meant absolutely nothing. We took our little babies in there and they were splashing around in the pool and it didn't take long for all of the pool orphans to come over attracted to us as adults. They got into the, into the kiddie pool. They started taking all the toys away from my children. They're stomping around and pushing each other around, pushing my kids' heads under the water and so forth. So finally I tiptoed out. I didn't tiptoe. I walked out into the middle of the kiddie pool and I said, enough. Everybody stop this. They were so startled by a post-pubescent voice that they immediately listened. The whole place shut down. I said, stop. We're going to get hurt like this. We've got to have some order so that everybody is safe, especially the little ones. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep the gate locked so the little ones can't get out and fall into the deep pool. We're going to keep the gate locked. And then we're going to divide up the toys. And I'm going to set my timer on my watch. And every three minutes, we're going to change toys. Well, it worked. I even created a few little Pharisees in the group. You go out of the gate. Mr. George, I'm opening and closing the gate. Mr. George, before the timer's gone off, I'm passing around the toys. You don't even have to remind me. I let them live with the Phariseeism for a while. We would straighten the gospel out later, but we just needed order. We needed safety. And we had fun. We had a lot better fun when there was loving rule. We weren't living as orphans. God has given his word to you. He's given his ways to you. He's given his priorities to you in in his word. Not to restrict your fun, not to restrict your being, not to, not to, uh, not to, uh, to take away your personhood so that you might flourish, so that you might live as a child is supposed to live in the freedom that causes one to thrive and causes others to be blessed as well. And the way to begin that is to come and yield your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord. Yes, for the first time, but also over and over again because it is in losing yourself for Christ and the gospel's sake. It's only by doing so that you will find your life. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us more than we love ourselves. Regarding us as friends, not as slaves, but as friends whom you are putting back together in the way you originally created us to be. For some this day, this is a chafing. It's restricting. For some moms and dads, it seems like a hopeless task. But Lord, we pray that your spirit 
which is able to take out a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, would do so for those within the sound of my voice who have not yet embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. It would encourage the rest of us that to live in you is to live freely. And would you also encourage us that you hearken into our prayers and you are able to change hearts, even our own. We pray it in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.